Ireland podcast with your hosts, me, Michelle McGuire and Hazel Mullins. We are delighted to be joined on this episode by Brian Faulkner, veterinary surgeon, practice owner, co-founder of Colourful CPD and founder of the BVRA and much, much more. This is a really great episode and we hope you enjoy it. Hello, Brian, and welcome to the Best Face Ireland podcast. It is amazing to have you with us. Um, I'm sure we have lots of listeners very excited for this podcast so welcome and how are things ah great thank you very much yeah another busy busy day in practice as all of us i'm sure have had and uh now it's good um keeping tearing away at it and are you over in the uk all the time brian yeah so i live in east anglia i actually live probably closer to holland than i do to you as the crew (laughs) flies i live out right on the most easterly point of east anglia and uh, so that's where I've been for the last 20 years and mm-hmm. set up my various small animal veterinary practices there. So I work clinically there three days a week and do my other non-clinical stuff, which I'm sure we'll probably talk about a wee bit. But um, yeah. yeah, that's where I am. I think we'll mention that all right in, in a minute, but we would love to hear about your veterinary journey so far, Brian. So fire away. Yeah. So I grew up in uh, Cookstown, Tyrone, and I left uh, home in 1989 to go to Edinburgh University, studied there for six years, graduated. And, and at that time, my plan was to become a large animal mixed at least practitioner in Northern Ireland. And then I left and I have never done a day's work in Northern Ireland in my whole 27 career, much to my parents' disgust. But I, uh, so I, I graduated, then I worked in Leicestershire, mixed practice in Leicestershire for five years. I graduated in 95 and I left at the millennium and I then did a master's in business and MBA full time. So my wife and I got married and we uh, did our MBAs together on our honeymoon year, which was quite fun <laughs> going back to university as uh, sort of mature postgraduates. And my MBA was one of the most useful, eye-opening things that I ever did. And I actually say it made me a better vet, ironically. And the reason why was because I learned strategy for the first time. I mean, in vet school, we learn about very specific, quite relatively objective ways of looking at animal disease. But in real world, of course, it's strategic with respect to trying to resolve clinical situations in conjunction with the clients and the financial and all the rest. So there's objectives and various options to do that. So I did that MBA. And I remember I handed in my dissertation on the day the Twin Towers came down in New York so September the 11th, 2001, I handed in my dissertation and my wife came back. Uh, he had, again, an extension on hers because, you know, she, was, she didn't extra time or something like that. I, I say that to her because she ended up in the coming top of the year. And uh, <laughs> but she, she had a slightly more involved project than mine. Uh, so, yeah, I remember handing in my dissertation and her saying, um, switch on the TV. You won't believe what's happened in New York. And then I was in the process of, trying to work out what to do. I knew I wanted to do practice ownership, either setting up a practice or buying a practice. And I kind of felt buying a practice probably was the the safest thing to do. And I bid on a couple of practices in the corporates in the UK in the early 2000s were starting to get going and the prices they were offering compared to what the likes of me could offer was much more. Anyway, um, maybe I can tell you the story. I will tell you the story, maybe not in this little press, but uh, if you want to come back to it, I'll tell you the story of why I set up in East Anglia. Um, And anyway, I set up my practice almost 20 years ago to the day, and I set it up from scratch. Part of the world I'd never been to before, and found a building, opened it up, and did all right. And uh, then I sold that to CVS, in 2009 stroke 10 after seven years and at that time I had also done my master's in psychology and I did that for a combination of two reasons one I was getting a bit bored with veterinary practice after 15 years and I always loved psychology and I'd been introduced or sort of inspired to me during my MBA because of the social aspects and the psychology components of business and management and I did that and 
then when I sold my practice, I actually worked for CVS as a regional, what was it called? I was called a director of clinical support or something like that. And basically I went around practices and helped them and then decided actually I should do this for myself as a consultant. So I did a bit of that and, and started to do that. And again, I can tell you the story of how my speaking career started incredibly ad hoc and unplanned. And that's another story if you want to come back to it. <laughs> and then I, I set up another practice and um, sold that after five years and then was doing a lot of co consultancy and coaching all around the world. And then COVID came along. So I was restrained back to Suffolk again. So what do you do? You stick with what you know. And I set up another practice. <laughs> and that's the one I'm in now. So COVID's going away. So I do more consultancy now. But at least the good thing about having a practice is it keeps me home three or four nights a week. So in a nutshell, that's what I do. I set practices up. I get bored. I sell them. And then I go back to selling a practice and I do it again. And I have to say, I love being a veterinary clinician. So that's the sort of the jump view of what I've done. And if you want to pick into some of the reasons, some of the stories behind that, I'm happy to share. First thing, Brian, your most current practice you just set up at the beginning of the pandemic. I opened it the day that lockdown two happened in the UK. So the 6th of November, 2020. So did the inspiration two. just come with, with the pandemic? Were you like, right, let's do this? Or had it been in the planning or? Oh, no, it hadn't been in the planning at all. No, no. I um, so <laughs> spent years trying to set up a practice and you're like, OK, let's do it. Go. No, well, but to be honest, a wee bit like that. And um, but then I, this was my that was my fourth practice that it set up. Um, so you do get a wee bit sort of au fait with it. And I don't mean that in a sort of a big man way. I just you, you get all the scary bits. You sort of know what's going to happen. So, um, of course, it sounds bad that you opened in a pandemic. But actually, it was great because the only we were one of the essential businesses and people were bored and they wanted to go out to anything. So the vets was one of those things. So we did really very well as a result of the fact that people wanted to come out, get out, you know, and uh, so actually it did okay. Um, we were lucky in that we have a large waiting room. So actually clients sat, we brought them into the building. They sat at one end of the waiting room and I consulted at the other end of it. And my colleagues held the dogs and the clients loved that because virtually everyone else around was of course, understandably keeping people out of the building. And it was winter time and it was cold and it was wet. So actually, we had a differential advantage that we were able to allow people in. And that, that drew a lot of people. Yeah, that's very mm. good. So go back then to um, why did you set up in East Anglia? OK, so <laughs> true story. My wife and I had two dogs at that time. The lovely Tess and Milo, now deceased, of course. Um, and they were staying with my in-laws who live in East Suffolk and we were across in Oxfordshire visiting former university friends and that's a story in itself upstairs there were four girls downstairs there was four boys and there was two marriages out of the two flats <laughs> and um and it was a bit like friends I think everybody had been with everyone else to try them out before that <laughs> Oh, <laughs> a Ross and Rachel, a Ross and Rachel of the veterinary world. Okay, yes, it was a bit like that. I <laughs> anyway, was on a break. <laughs> I was on a break, exactly. Um, so anyway, we were visiting our friends in Oxford and my father-in-law called me at about three o'clock on a Sunday afternoon and said, uh, Tessa, our seven-year-old uh, Tibetan terrier, couldn't stand up. And I said, well, you know, do this, do that, raise her legs. And is she sore? Not really, but she can't bear weight on her back legs. So, of course, the concern was either, you know, some sort of disc issue, but she didn't seem sore enough or thromboembolus, perhaps. So I said, well, you're going to have to take her to the vet. And when you get there, allow me to speak to them and talk vet. So they took them and they called the vets. And, uh, and they, they were clients of the practice. You know, they had their own dogs at this practice. And they took the dogs to the vets and uh, then eventually I got to speak to the vet and I said to her hello I'm Brian I said I'm a small animal vet uh, I said thank you very much for seeing my dog on a Sunday afternoon I know what it's like I'm a small animal vet what an inconvenience and I don't honestly remember the words she said but it was some I said I was concerned with some sort of disc issue what I didn't realize at the time was Tess had got to the practice as all dogs do and they jumped out of the boot and ran around the car park <laughs> having not been able to stand up of course partly for half an hour before 
But you know, you know, you know those sort of calls if you're a vet. There's a little bit of an eye roll where you go home, Blumenek, this is far for an emergency. But the other part of you goes, thank goodness that I don't have to start x-rays and referrals of this thing on a Sunday afternoon because I'm back mm-hmm. home in half an hour, shot a medicam and we're done, you know. And uh, it's actually an easy call. But anyway, she wasn't in the mood for being easy. And she said some version of, I don't know what the word she said, but it was some version of, you mustn't be much of a vet if you thought that. And and I went, okay, that's fine. Thank you. Make sure you get paid. And I told my father-in-law, make sure you pay her, whatever she gets to pay her. And I put the phone down and went, I am setting up in that town against them. And I'm going to take every client I can get. <laughs> and I did. And I went to work in anger for seven years to basically, and I took 5,000 clients from them in five years. Jesus. So, yeah, don't, don't pee The answer off. is don't, <laughs> don't mess with Brian. What? Do not. Do not mess with Brian. No, I know it sounds a wee bit aggressive, but it was one of those things that was actually a little motivator in that sense of actually uh, doing it. But um, it turned out to be a, a wonderful well I always find that it's really interesting to find out how people or how things come to be you know Mm -hmm. um like I was listening to a podcast the other day it was really good it was about um oh Maxwell um or what's your man name Robert Maxwell you know the yeah the tycoon tycoon. yeah and basically he set up his whole business just because he hated Rupert Murdoch yeah yeah, absolutely so like his whole empire now I know it was shady and fell into bits but like his whole mission was just to outdo Rupert Murdoch he just hated him well that's um, what Je- like, Jeffrey Archer I, based his book Cain and Abel on that on that philosophy yeah like it's so funny like and I actually remember thinking about it going because like that's how things you know how what dry you know what all the different things that drive people to start a business so well I did a wee, I did, I did a wee, a wee bit I did a wee bit better than him I suppose if you count it out <laughs> But you succeeded. Joking. I didn't do it. Admittedly, uh, I can't, yeah, I say I went up to work in anger. There was definitely a motivation because you know what it's like. You feel slighted and you do a job and uh, and away you go. Anyway, that's kind of the slightly quirky story, but that's honestly true. That's actually why I decided to set up in that town because I was so irked that Sunday afternoon with how they spoke to me about my talk. Yeah. Well, that makes sense. You were concerned and an owner who wasn't there. Yeah, I mean, yeah, exactly. I mean, it, it, it was just, I just felt it was uh, slightly, uh, um, I don't know if it was the most professional in many dimensions. And uh, anyway, and she was only, I say, an only, she was an employee of the practice. And I ended up meeting the bosses of it three or four years later. <laughs> and they said to me, why didn't you come and speak to us? Perhaps and we could have joined forces. And I told them the story <laughs> and they went, oh my God, who was that? <laughs> I said I don't know her name but anyway <laughs> anyway that's a by the way that's how it happened they're probably like looking up like Faulkner like you know trying to like look where the dog was four years ago yeah I bet you. The dog. yeah exactly and uh, oh my god they able to trace me through my in-laws name unless they oh. did the research on that oh yes yeah 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 anyway that's what happened and actually so that's what happened, and it was very, very lucky. And you know, you could you could talk about all the lucky, lucky things in the world. I had only one building that was available to me. It happened to be at a wonderful bridging point where five thousand people had to come past my door every day uh, on the way in towards the main town. Uh, I could be very clever and say, well, of course, I chose that point because it was such a strategic landmark. It was just pure luck. That was the only building that was available, and I took it, and it ended up being a lot a much more fortunate location than I really ever had appreciated at the time. And uh, it was beside traffic lights, so it's very visible. If anybody is thinking of setting up practices, and I coach people virtually every week now on setting up practices, location, location, location. Um, I know we all want to scrimp on the rent because we think that 10,000 euro pounds, whatever it is, is not, but you will make more than 10,000 pounds or euro per year than the rent costs you to have a prime location. And mm-hmm. uh, I know it's a lot of money in the beginning when you don't have any money, I get that. But if you can survive it, think that the extra rent will bring you multiple returns back if you can survive it. Very good points. Mm. Tell us about Colourful CPD and why you set it up, because it is okay. really a fantastic um well, thank you. For, that's nice of you to say. I'll tell you again. It's always there's always a story. You see, if people get to know me. They say there's always a story with Brian, you know. And uh, so, I'm at a CPD in Birmingham, 
in 2010 stroke 11, having just completed my psychology. And I'm at that stage of what am I doing next? I've sold a practice. What am I doing next? And in my psychology masters, my dissertation, I asked the question, what is a good vet under the things of who has the right to decide and whoever does decide what criteria are they using to evaluate that? Because of course we as clinicians think good vet equals somebody who can you know, diagnose well and prescribe and do amazing technical things. But of course it's much more than the clients we know will thank us for things that we're embarrassed about and vice versa, you know? So I asked this question from a psychological point of view. Anyway, I had all this information that I had from my dissertation. And I'm at CPD, and I think it was cardiology or something like that in Birmingham. And I happen to sort of know the person who's organizing it, but not really that well. There's about 50, 60 people in the room waiting for this cardiology lecture, and, and of which I'm one. And the organizer gets a phone call, and the face drops. And I kind of said to her, what's up? And she said, our speaker is stuck in traffic. Um, he cannot get here. They've closed the motorway. He will not be getting here. And what do I do? And she said rhetorically, do you want to say something, Brian? Do you want to speak rhetorically? And again, one thing, you know, anybody will know me is you never ask Brian rhetorically, do you want to speak? Because I'll, <laughs> I'll be able to do it. I said to her, well, I have just done my master's in psychology and there's a few interesting things there that might be worth discussing if people are in the mood for a very informal talk about it. And she said, you're on. And I, um, I did it. And at the end of the talk, speaking really from the coffin and I look back on it I'm sure it was a completely chaotic mess of thoughts but a guy came up to me who owned a practice and he said how much would you charge me to tell that to our vets and I thought wow so he's going to pay me to do this and I said well I'm locuming at the moment would a day's locuming rate be reasonable he went dumb and of course at that time I didn't realize that you know the return on investment and things like that but anyway i was just delighted that somebody thought of it and that's actually where colorful consultation began and actually the story of that i turned up for that talk and i had a little slide deck and the, the practice manager said what's the name of your talk and i said oh it's just called the veterinary consultation and she said oh that's boring she said your slides are quite colorful let's call it the colorful consultation and i went Okay. I went, oh, well, yeah, it sounds a bit twee and odd and who knows what, I, I, well, whatever. And that stuck, that stuck. You know, you can talk about all the branding you like. So I did all, I did, all, I used to do that and that became a thing really um, where I used to go and speak to practices and speak to things and at, at conferences. And I always say a good gig is a gig that you get another gig on the back of. In other words, at the end of the gig, you've been invited to the next one. And that's the hallmark of a good gig, if you like. And, and that happened. That happened for a long time. So I, I had this one product, Colorful Consult, and then I decided, well, actually, now that we've sort of sorted out the veterinary communication in the consult room, what about the rest of the clinical client journey? So then I started giving reception talks in connection with before and after the consult, and then that evolved, and which is now the British Veterinary Receptionist Association, an accredited veterinary receptionist award, and I created the status of the registered veterinary receptionist in the UK, and that all came from those talks. So it's just one of those wee evolutions. So that's actually then Colourful CPD became my online version, very much accelerated by COVID because I couldn't go and speak, so we put it online. So Colourful CPD became the on-demand. On demand. And basically, in a nutshell, I help four roles in practices. So vets, nurses, reception, and management. They're the four roles. And I help them achieve four things. Good clinical, good client, good team, and good financial outcomes. And that's what I do. That's the philosophy of Colourful CPD. Four roles, four outcomes. How do you help each of those contribute to those four outcomes? And that's what I do. And that's all now available online, which COVID accelerated. It's very good. It's amazing, isn't it? How COVID has changed. Like I love webinars and even like I'm uh, hopefully going to be doing your uh, course on leadership. Um, Brian, I'm looking forward to it. I've just finished my cert in food animal production in Edinburgh. So I'm ready for road again. Very good. So, very good. <laughs> <laughs> I'm looking very forward good. to it. Yeah. Oh, so well it's, uh, well I suppose with my new role and everything that it just, it's just opened my eyes because I was so focused on clinical 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 and I still love you know yeah. going like seeing my clinical webinar you know doing my clinical webinars and I love my cows and everything but I think it just 
I think London Vet Show as well, Michelle, didn't it? It really opened her eyes to the non-clinical side of, of a CPD and how amazing it can be for vets and how underutilized it is. So um, yeah. I came across there. Colourful CPD, a, a former employer of mine, um, bought one of your courses for me. I think it was the KPI one or something. They okay. had done your Colourful Consultation ones herself yeah. and the other assistant vet. And she was telling me all about it. And I was like, oh, this looks really interesting. And I did it. And I was like, this is just so, like, so simplistic and so easy to put into practice and to articulate to the rest of the team. And um, yeah, so I became a fan then. Thank you. One of the things that I try to do, and sometimes it takes a few years to get it actually clear in your head. But one of the things I try to do is speak it in a really, really simple, makes sense, no BS kind of way that actually says this is useful. I do get very tired of listening to these abstract theories that may sound interesting, but if there's no real obvious direct relevance, even the TED Talk culture, a lot of that stuff is interesting and inspirational, but how do you translate it into what I'm doing tomorrow in practice? And I've really tried to make it right down to that actually what do we do and sometimes there's difficult scenarios where there are no quick answers or if there, or if there are i haven't found them um you know in terms of trying to have difficult conversations with irate clients or colleagues who are maybe underperforming and you know we've talked about this a wee bit before where we talk about the different personality or mindsets that can actually help you shall we say unlock some of the personalities that can be difficult. So yeah, it's one of the things I've always, always tried to keep it really practical because at the end of the day, that's what we all do. We all work in veterinary practice with practical situations and how do we help that? Mm. Yeah, it's very good. Excellent. Where are we next, Hazel? But I, can I just jump oh, in I, there, you know, just on the non-clinical yeah. part that you said though, is that's absolutely true. You know, I. I almost always when I'm coaching people in relation to confidence, well-being, mental health, you know, all that sort of soft stuff that I coach as well with my psychology hat on. When they talk about the challenge of their job, they don't really struggle with the diagnostics and therapeutics as much as some of those can be difficult. But what they really talk about are the challenges of communication with clients, with colleagues, with money, with time management, all of those sort of non-clinical aspects of our clinical work. And and, and it does sometimes frustrate me that people try and resolve those things with another cardiology, dermatology, ophthalmology, you know, ology lecture. And I kind of go, mm. yeah, of course they're important. We've got to keep up to date with that. But actually, and I'm really pleased to hear you guys sort of saying that there is a sort of a Pandora's box or a, a, an area where you go into this non-clinical and good non-clinical CPD can really make you feel this is the stuff that I need because this is really what I'm struggling with. And, yeah. and I would encourage listeners, and I'm not just talking about my non-clinical CPD, any non-clinical CPD, uh, it really, really often gets to the nub of where people are struggling. So uh, Ours, our non-clinical CPD. There you go. <laughs> we there were so go. inspired. We, we set up a whole second clang. We, <laughs> I was trying to be gracious, but go you, Michelle. <laughs> <laughs> You're talking about Pandora's box. We were on the plane yeah. from London Fetch Show going... Feck it, let's do it. Come on. Yeah. At first. I was wrecked and Michelle was like, right, where are we going to have this conference? And I was like, oh my God, Michelle, I don't know. And she's like, how about like Kildare? And I was like, okay. And yeah. We were perfect. We were out all night. And I I really congratulate you, honestly, because honestly, it it is a risk, not a risk in a bad way, but it's it's that unknown. It's putting yourself out there. It's that sort of stuff. And, And honestly, oh I'm so supportive and that's why I'm coming to speak with you because I'm so supportive of that mission because you know the people that I meet and and have courses anybody's courses but they they are so appreciative of it and there's so much need for it so well done you and uh, uh, these are early beginnings and 10 years time we'll kind of go oh wow do you remember the very first one (laughs) (laughs) <laughs> uh, we'll have a lot more wrinkles by then anyway i think the- uh, you speak for yourself hazel <laughs> oh <laughs> <laughs> we'll go um, we, anyway I, I was going to say we were talking about gofundmes a, a minute ago weren't we before we started and i was like maybe like a, <laughs> well, not like a cosmetic maybe. surgery yeah. yeah anyway um so brian you were talking there about I, everything you say totally resonates with me and I think 
um, just the veterinary in- industry in general, we always ask this question, what do you think the biggest challenge is at the present time for the veterinary industry? Yeah, I think probably the most acute and maybe medium and long term, medium anyways, of course, the scarcity of vets in the system. And it was already creaking pre-COVID, but COVID really drove it. And I remember saying after lockdown started ending, and that's obviously probably within the last 12 months, and the people were exhausted and a lot of people out of loyalty or maybe the fact that they couldn't disappear to Australia, New Zealand, which tends to be the getaway destination for English speakers, get as far away in the planet that speaks the language we do to kind of get away from all the perceived stresses. So there's going to be an exodus of the, the two to five year graduates in the next 18 months because there's a feeling of, I, talk, I call it the three year wobble of self-doubt. We always, there's a very, very common wobble of self-doubt after three years. It's actually the most, it's the lowest level of confidence in vets. And it's the real point where a lot of vets will leave the profession because they get sense of self-doubt as opposed to doubt. And I could go all into that. But this idea that they're maybe feeling they're not good enough for this profession. And that's one of the biggest, biggest things. So taking that, and that's only one variable within the whole reason why we've not got enough vets. And that's really having all sorts of, when you think of my four outcomes, it's having clinical outcomes, it's compromising patient well-being. I mean, especially in large animal, okay? Small animal, there's always a way to get your pet seen one way or other. But in large animal, I mean, that really does have significant impact on animal health and well-being. Uh, so then clients, of course, uh, and then the financial aspects for businesses, some businesses in the UK, I'd be interested to hear in Ireland, but some veterinary businesses in the UK are closing and that's amazing. They're closing because they can't staff the thing. Wow. Um, it's amazing. And then, of course, colleague satisfaction. People are burnt out, tired, disillusioned. So that affects all four of my outcomes. Uh, and and uh, so I think that's probably the biggest one. If you're going to ask me how do we solve it, well, that's not a quick answer. But, uh, you know, definitely needs to be thought about uh, in, in somewhere. And, of course, in the UK, we've got Brexit as well, which said to on the whole European market, oh, you're not welcome effectively. Um, mm-hmm. So we lost a lot of people with that. Um, so yeah, I think I think in a nutshell, that is the big problem that everyone's struggling with. Yeah. Yeah. I, I wonder, did, um, sorry, Michelle, I wonder did Brexit, because I obviously, I studied in, in Nottingham um, and I wonder did Brexit kind of put a halt on a lot of Irish, even students going to the UK? I think it probably did with the EU fees and things like that you know, probably going, which probably didn't help Ireland, Irish vets either, you know, because we don't, like there is Eastern Europeans, but we're hoping that someday we'll have a second vet school in Ireland. It'll be nice, but I think we've, we we should have, I don't know, seen this maybe coming. I don't think anybody saw Brexit coming though. I mean, mean, (laughs) we all woke up in the UK and went, we, we, we did what? <laughs> and, we did what? Um, yeah. Yeah, it's astonishing. And nobody really, to be honest, understood the repercussions of that. Uh, we didn't know what we were voting for, to be honest. We were voting purely on emotion and silly things. And uh, and it's got, you know, massive repercussions. And uh, as you say, both ways, both in terms of Europeans being able to work here in the UK and, and people coming to the UK uh, and us going elsewhere. I mean, you try ex- not exporting, even a dog traveling now to France, Europe, Ireland, even uh, the whole passport situation is a total mess. Yeah. And, uh, it, it, you know, things like that. But anyway, it's all part of it. And we would have probably started working it out. And then COVID came along and that uh, created that. But uh, anyway, I've got my Irish passport. Very proud of that. My kids have got their Irish passports as well. <laughs> so uh, mum's English, so she has to stand in the long queue and we crack on. <laughs> <laughs> See you later, darling. Yeah. <laughs> <laughs> oh, God. oh God. Okay, Brian. What are your advice and tips for new grad vets or vet students? So this can be veterinary or professional, personal, anything at all. Yeah, I think one of the things we've already touched on it, and I know it doesn't seem like what you want to do, but focus, not focus, at least give decent airtime to non-clinical aspects of CPD. And I, I say it because 
80% in the UK, and I suspect it's very similar in Ireland, of the complaints that go to regulators or even to practice bosses are not about technical competence or the likes. They're actually about, the, the, they're about money, they're about service, they're about communication, they're about non-clinical aspects when you look at it. So it makes logical sense to focus on non-clinical aspects. The other piece of advice, which comes back to what I had maybe already referred to, was recognize the difference between doubt and self-doubt. If I could go back and tell the 1995 me one piece of advice, it's recognize the difference between doubt, which is situational uncertainty. I can't tell what's causing that heart murmur just by listening to it. I can't tell what that lump is just by feeling it. I can't tell what that whatever it is, just by touching, smelling it, seeing it, feeling it, whatever. We have only got so much information from our physical senses. Very few symptoms are pathognomonic. So therefore, there's always an element of doubt and uncertainty about the cause of a symptom or a clinical sign, given the information we have at that stage. And that's just doubt. That's situational inherent uncertainty. And that's the way it is. But what you find a lot of us do, and I'm sure we all recognize this, is we go, I don't know what that is. Rather than because it's not possible to know, the story we say is because I'm not good enough. And we take the doubt and we allow it to become self-doubt. We actually start under valuing or even underestimating our abilities because of things we're not able to know. So one of the best phrases I've ever learned was, there's not a bet in the world can tell you what that is with the information we currently have. But that doesn't mean we can't get more information with some sort of diagnostic, a lab or an imagery, if that's the situation. But realizing, and self-doubt, I call it confidence cancer. In fact, that is what we're talking about at Vet Success. You know, that stream yeah. that we're going to do for you guys. We're going to talk about so many people try and acquire a fake sense of confidence by bravado, or which can even spill into arrogance and that sort of things. But actually understanding, first of all, it's like, you, you can't stitch up an infected wound, right? You got to understand how to control the bad bits before you build the good bits. And that's what this talk is about, is understanding the things that undermine our self-confidence. And I, I, that's the thing I learned most in my psychology, not only from my own understanding of the world and my own understanding of my psyche, but of course, coaching with others. So you know, I talk about six Ds of dysphoria. Dysphoria is that feeling of uh, uh, bad day, uh, you know, so that's that's an official definition. Uh. Um, so you've got doubt, you've got deadlines. So time pressure, probably one of the biggest pressures. So doubt, deadlines, difficulty, um, disappointment, disagreement, and disapproval. And those are the things that break your day. Even though you just, that's life though. But when you look at those six things, they also have got value. You know, doubt, look before you leap. Disagreement? Well, if we all thought we were right all the time, the word would, you know, wouldn't be a great place. Disapproval? What's well, a social mechanism for making sure we behave ourselves? Uh, but at the same time, disapproval can be really very uncomfortable and painful. And, uh, you know, so there's uh, those elements of how do we find the balance? And then we talk about what we're going to talk about in that lecture is how people mask that with certain strategies. And they're called perfectionism. If I never make a mistake, everyone will think I'm okay. And narcissism, People might not think I'm good enough, so I'll keep telling them how good I am and, hey, they'll know. And that's pretty antisocial in the long term. But then we look at the more pragmatic, wholesome strategies in the long term. I mean, basically, we're trying to be every Tom Hanks character he's ever played. Right? <laughs> that real, solid, genuine, good guy. Yeah. And if you look at Tom Hanks characters, they're all of the same ilk. They yeah. all seem genuine, authentic. So that's a very long answer for basically saying, if nothing else, if you don't know how to resolve it, at least recognize it. The difference between doubt and self-doubt. And I wish I'd have known that in 1995. That's very good advice. Very and profound advice, yeah. I like how you kind of brought it in. You made it slightly clinical there by saying you don't stitch a, a dirty wound, which, you know, any vet that is very, you know, still yeah. very in the clinical world, yeah. Um, recognizes that that's a bad idea. <laughs> so, yeah, and we all know intuitively yeah. that's a bad idea, but we do it mm. psychologically all the time. We try and mask over over wounds. Yeah. 
Yeah, so great advice. And obviously you're going to be talking more about that. I'm very excited to hear that lecture. Yeah. Like Myself. every time I talk to you, Brian, I'm like, oh my God, I know someone like that. Or, oh yeah, yeah. that happens to me. Or yeah. Yeah, yeah, there's just so many things that you just identify with. And yeah, it's going to be good. It's going to, yeah, I'm looking forward and it's to good it. good that you identify with that. And, and to be honest, it's mm. not necessarily that people are perfectionists, narcissists, pragmatists. It's that we are, there's a wee bit of that in all of us. And I think if we honestly recommend, I can be, I can be perfectionist, narcissistic and pragmatic all in the same hour. <laughs> My challenge is to make sure that I rein in the right ones, <laughs> you know, rein in the ones that are not necessarily the, the most social and actually be a bit more pragmatic when it goes wrong. And we, you know, it, it's not about black or white. It's about modes and uh, recognizing those modes. But we, you know, we are certain personalities are more one those than the other. Um, and we, we are all those things, but it's, it's recognizing them. So interesting. So like your biggest life lesson, Brian, I know we're, we're still on, we'll, we'll get on to the fun bits now in a minute, but uh-huh. we'll do one last, I suppose, deep This question. is the fun stuff. I love this stuff. <laughs> <laughs> it no, gets fun, better than this, Hazel. Oh my God. Fun stuff is finding out what, fine, <laughs> fun stuff is what Brian, what Brian, what's Brian, well, we always ask what the funniest veterinary moment is. So we always I'll leave that to the last I'll, for I'll a good giggle. So yeah. 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 So um, biggest life lesson, what do you think? My life lesson, biggest life lesson? Mm, mm. Oh, um, okay, you know, there's so many really. Um, I, I, there's a phrase that I like. Um, Oliver Wendell Holmes was a United, Court, United States Supreme Court judge and I think about 1920. And he said, certitude is not a test for certainty. Certitude, the belief that you think and know and absolutely convinced you're right is not a test for being right. And I think we do that sometimes where we possibly through a sense of doubt again, we persuade ourselves into things, totally believing we're right. And, and, and I'm sure we've all got a story. We were absolutely convinced something was the way it was or is or was going to be. We're absolutely convinced to our massive shock it turned out to be something different and we just couldn't fathom it. And I have this and, and somebody I put it another way. When you're most convinced you're right, you should be most concerned you could be wrong. And I think it just keeps you real in that sense of going. And I know that seems like a counterconfidence thing, but whenever you start talking yourself into confidence, it's not really confidence. It's this sort of, life is a game of probabilities. And it's about making sure that you play the probabilities in the right way. And and an understanding that probabilities will go against you sometimes. But when you're 100% convinced of something, that's when you go, this is the one that's not going to be 100%. And that's probably the thing that I, I've learned the most is just keep it real and, uh, and realize, you know, it is the way it is. More very wise, profound advice there. You're su- quoting mm-hmm. a Supreme United States Supreme Judge from the 1920s. Where on earth did you come across that quote? Oh, well, psychology. I mean, in okay. psychology, there's so many, so many of these phrases in uh, psychology. The other thing as well, we have a magazine, I suspect you've got a version of it in Ireland too. It's called The Week, where it summarizes the, the week's events in uh, about a dozen pages. And I like that. I mean, I don't read newspapers, uh, and but I like the idea of just tell me the main stuff that happened this week mm. so I'm kind of vaguely aware. The highlights. And, uh, and in it, the page that I go to first, the one I love the most, it's called Wit and Wisdom. And it's little sayings like that that are insightful or humorous about life. And it's the one that I go to first because I just it just entertains me. And, uh, uh, and, and I read it with the kids and I talk about what it might mean and they, they debate it with me. And I, I just love that sort of stuff. I, I love little, just little, little sayings. Yeah. My two freak show that things, good. sayings and flags, they're my two specialist subjects. <laughs> sayings oh. and flags. Well... Do you have a room of flags in your house? Well, you can see behind on my wall. Can you see my yeah, map of the world a, on my wall? Map of the world. Mm-hmm. Yeah, well, it's a it's a 3D map of the world. Actually, it comes out. It's made of wood, so it's carved out of wood. And um, uh, there aren't actually flags on it, but anybody who knows me actually knows kind of going how are the flags coming in. So here's a wee bit of trivia for you, and we have to answer this question at the end. But let your listeners think about it. There's only one flag in the world 
that doesn't have either the color red or the color white or the color blue in it. Okay. So yeah, we won't go quiet because it wouldn't make for great listening, but people can mm. think about it. And all I'm going to give you is a clue. I instantly clue. thought Jamaica, but there's blue in that, isn't there? No, you're right. Jamaica. Oh, <laughs> Nobody gets that. I was about to say the clue is that um, it was pretty famous in the Olympics over the last two or three, four Olympic cycles. Because of the <laughs> I was going to say Well Jamaica. done. That's amazing. I don't oh, think I've ever... I feel ever like I should get a prize. Michelle, you're a genius. some prize. You, no one no one has ever got that and never mind getting it within 10 seconds michelle you're a genius <laughs> i instantly thought thought jamaica i said a bit well done. jamaica well done. um the, that's how much useless trivia i have today michelle i'm so proud you're of my you. kind of girl michelle <laughs> <laughs> i know well the, know. the competitive nature in me now is like why didn't i get that why did i not get that <laughs> yeah that's right <laughs> Something wrong right. with Michelle. There's something wrong with you. Something wrong. I think there might be. Something wrong. Um, Ryan, tell uh, us this. What do you do to unwind in your spare time when you're not being a vet or a speaker or a coach? Um, and how do you manage your own well-being and mental health, I suppose? I think anybody that knows me knows that I don't tend to unwind very well or often. <laughs> I'm always up to something. Some people seem to like, you know, doing nothing. I'm, I'm not a doing nothing sort of person. And I don't mean that in any judgmental or kind of way. It's just, I, I would rather relax by talking about something weird, like flags or, or something like that, that's keeping my brain entertained rather than actually doing nothing. Of course, like everybody else, we get tired and sometimes you just want to do. Um, do you know one of the things that I absolutely love? And I, oh, they're going to say this, gonna be, in my office where I'm in now is in my little TV across the way there is I listen to Shauna's country. So it's Irish country music. And it's on every Saturday night. In one, of, in one of those, honestly, it's in one of those channels that's on Sky that nobody ever knows about, you know? And I've got it on repeat, you know, series link. And I watch it at, and on every Sunday afternoon. It's my little luxury time. And I just sort of, I listen to it. I don't barely watch it. Like it's sort of an MTV for country music, but it's Irish stuff. And she features a lot of people who are up and coming as well. It's right up to Dolly Parton's of the world and all others. And obviously I'm getting very old listening to this sort of stuff now. But, um, and and absolutely, just as my total moment of the week where I'm listening to Shona. And Shona actually lives about 10 miles away from where I grew up in Tyrone. And it's just so funny hearing the little colloquialisms that I grew up with and the way she says things and all the same. So anyway, I do that. And then at half past three, come rain, hail or shine, every Sunday afternoon, I go for a 10K run. Um, that's what I do every, wow. Sunday, every Sunday afternoon. But I, so again, there's always a story. Um, I'd never run more than 10K up until 2016. I played a lot of hockey, field hockey, when I was um, growing up. And uh, that was my game, really. And I, as that, I never run more than 10K in training. And I'm at the bar in Celtic Manor at the Society of Practicing Vets. And it's one o'clock in the morning. And I'm trying to get a drink at the bar. And there's a fellow standing beside me who I don't know. And we're chatting. And we ended up saying, well, what's your connection to the event? He said to me, and I said, well, I organized it. <laughs> he said, all right. I said, what's your, what's you? He said, we're the charity. And I said, you know what, as the organizer, I probably should know what that is. <laughs> what are you? And he goes, Brooke Animal Hospital. I said, what's that? Working horses, especially donkeys in the third world, right? And I went, oh, okay. Wow. He said, do you want to run the London Marathon for us as a charitable thing? And I went, no. Nah. I said, no, I'm not your lad. I said, no, no. I really, I'd love to, you know, but I, I no, it's not for me. I, I, I'd let you down, really. Um, and he said, that's fine. We had a bit of a chat. At four o'clock, I think half four in the morning, we met back at the bar, just by coincidence, where me and this guy are back at the bar again <laughs> in this hotel. <laughs> And he says to me, now I'm maybe a few drinks further down the track now. And he says to me, um, what about that marathon? Are you going to run for us? And I said, no problem at all. You put me down. I'll be there. <laughs> no <laughs> problem. I, sa- I signed myself up to the London Marathon 2016. And I did it. And I, oh, never again. And I did say when I crossed the line, never again. But I'm pleased to have done it. And then a week or two of thinking about it. And I didn't really train. I didn't even know how to train for it. So I decided in true Brian style to do it really stupidly. I said, next year, I'm going to do the London Marathon, but I'm going to do it differently. So I said, I'm going to do 10 in 10 days. And the 10th one's going to be the London Marathon. 10 so I, marathons. Yeah. So I did 10 in 10 days and I did them all over 
British Isles. So I did one from Galway in the Wild Atlantic Way, from west of Galway and right into Galway. That was number seven. At Cookstown was number six. Tyrone was six. Then we went to into Wales the day after, then down to Land's End. Then we did West London, and then we did the London Marathon in 2017. And then I did it in the 2018th. And I, you know, I'm not fast at all. I plot. I do plot. But then in 2020, I ran from John O'Groats to Land's End. And I did 31 mm. marathons in 31 days. Jesus. So, <laughs> How did you not die? Do you know what? It's an, I, I, people say that. But actually, I reckon if you and me send out tomorrow to walk, to walk, maybe even a bit of running, 26 miles, you could do it. You could do it. You could do it. There'd be a lot of griping now, I'm not going to lie. Well, you might whinge about it. But a lot of blisters. Yeah. Well, maybe a wee bit of training and all the rest. But anyway, so I did that and I arrived on my 50th birthday, 31st of August, 19, uh, 2020. And that was my, I arrived in Land's End. And that kind of, so <laughs> it's the best way ever to lose weight. I lost eight kilograms in a month. Wow. That's not great. I mean, anybody listening tomorrow, we kind of go, but I was too heavy when I set out. Uh, but anyway, um, but your joints must be in bits. No, honestly, not. Not honestly, not. It's, it's have the finest of two brand new hips and new knees for your sixtieth. Yeah, people say that honestly. <laughs> Maybe popping the seroquin inside in the in the practice. Oh, I, you know, <laughs> the non-steroids. Uh, but but actually, anyway, I, I don't I don't think I ever get fast enough to do them any harm. <laughs> Fair enough. But anyway, that that's a it's version. Strange of for being competitive. You're calling me odd for being competitive. I think I think you were calling yourself odd. I just agree. Well, <laughs> I think you're well. That sounds like a very competitive nature. No, it wasn't. It wasn't. I went by myself. No. I went by myself. Um, well, it, it, it's an achievement complete, thing. Yeah. It's an achievement thing. I get that. I mean, I'm addicted to achievement, and I will admit that. But mm. um, I used to be terribly competitive when I was younger, and and of course, competition is never particularly. You know, there's there's healthy competition, but then there's sort of one-upmanship competition and that's why I went by myself because I just kind of went well well it's a discipline thing as well isn't it it's seeing if you can you know be that oh, well done Brian yeah but it was well nobody done. mad enough to come with me you know <laughs> I'm not surprised yeah no hmm. right you've told you've, you've told us a couple of funny stories already but hit us now with what your funniest veterinary moment to date is if you have one oh, I do there um I think it's going to be Christmas good. Eve, 1995. I'm a six-month graduate. And we're trying to wrap up at the end of the day, you know, four o'clock, five o'clock, even trying to you know, wrap up for Christmas Eve a wee bit earlier than normal. And this client brings in a rough collie, you know, the lassie dog, classic rough collie, you know. And the story was she'd been out walking it. No problem at the end of the walk. The dog jumped into the car. She drove home. The dog jumped out of the car. She took it into a wee boot room in the house, went to get a towel to dry it down. And when she came back, the dog couldn't stand on its hind legs. And its right hind leg was at like a goose step posture. So horizontal along the side of the dog's body. Okay. Anyway, she brought it into the practice. For her sins, she got to see me. And I was examining this dog and this dog was not particularly distressed, but it was a bit annoyed because it couldn't really balance very well. And there's one remaining hind leg and this leg was stuck right along the side. And I was feeling the thing, you know, and the hip was locked, you know, really locked. I couldn't, I couldn't move it at all. And I went down, you know, to the stifle, locked, solid, full extension. Went to the hock, locked, solid, you know, went to the metatarsals, solid. I could not move this lock. And, you know, you know, you don't, you know, if a dog dislocates its hip, it tends to hang, doesn't it, you know? But I hadn't seen many dislocations. And I was thinking, has this dog dislocated its hip somehow? And it's got its, you know, acetabulum underneath its pubis or something. And it's ended up locking. And what the heck is going on with this thing? So I said to her, okay, well, my goodness, I've never seen anything like this, I said, in my entire career. <laughs> I said, Anyway, we need to bring him in. We need to sedate him, take some x-rays and try and work out what's going on. How much is that going to be? Well, whatever. And what are we going to do about it? And I said, well, partly I don't know yet because whatever, but, you know, if it needs surgery, well, goodness, who knows what that could be? And I said, anyway, that's fine. Everybody's upset. And she's worried about this. And it's Christmas Eve and Christmas cancelled and all the rest. And then she said to me as I'm taking him away, she said, 
Could you have a look at his ears as well, by the way, shaking his head terribly. And um, and I said, I, I, I will, you know, maybe it's not the most urgent, but we'll have a look. I carry the dog through. I set it in the prep room floor. There's two people now waiting because I've spent forever on this dog. And I say to the nurse, can you prepare this dog for sedation? Get up, set, set up for a hip, hip x-ray, please. And I'll come back and have to see these people. So I see so the last consults and I come back and I come into the, con the prep room. The dog is standing all four legs and feet on the floor wagging its tail, happy as Larry. And I'm looking and I'm going, what the heck? And the nurse says, sorry, Brian, what do we do with this dog? <laughs> she goes, have you not noticed that the thing's right ear is so sore? It's obviously been scratching and it caught its toe inside the chain buried in on, underneath all the fur and it caught its digit of its right hind D3. <laughs> in the claw, uh, in the claw, but in the chain that I couldn't find. And I had examined it right up to halfway through. It's like P2, <laughs> P2. And I didn't examine it right to the end of the foot. And it had caught its claw. And the, and the nurse took the thing out of the collar and the dog was fine. And, um, and you know, now you have this dilemma of how stupid do you want to look when you call the client? And there was massive temptation to go, well, it's. It, I did a maneuver. We found <laughs> you're trying to big this up. So the dog went home with some canoral, and Christmas was back on. <laughs> I would have. I would have gone for the maneuver. Yeah. The maneuver, face saving. Yeah. Face saving. Oh, I was like, oh. yeah, yeah, and. Uh, that's yeah. so funny. Oh, definitely. There's definitely oh, nurses in my first job that still remind me of that. If I start, if I try ever to think I'm a bit, a bit of a big shot or I ever try to get a bit ahead of myself, <laughs> which could happen, you know, and um, the nurses text me and go, you calm down, buddy. I'll talk. I'll, I'll release the story about the boy, the, the, the rough calling. <laughs> so I'll, so I'll now it's, out there it's, to the masses. it's my confession here. So um, there's no dirt on me yeah. anymore. Brilliant. Nice, clean, fun. Do you know, there you go. It's lovely. There you go. Good, a good laugh. Um, Brian, thank you so much for joining us um, on our podcast today. And Thanks it's just me. been an absolute pleasure. Like you're, it's, I'm just beaming here. Like it's just, you just have so much wisdom. We could talk all for hours and hours. Yeah, great. Well, thank you for having me. And it's a pleasure. And I'm very pleased to be involved and be invited in your vet success event at the end of August and uh, really looking forward to it and uh, it's always 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 lovely coming across to Ireland and the crack is always very very good and I'm sure it'll be great Thank you for listening to the Pet Space Ireland podcast don't forget to subscribe so you never miss an episode and to find out more go to petspaceireland.ie and don't forget to check us out on social media and tag us whilst you're listening to the podcast We'd love to see it.